0: Before I came to Faith Life, I was a Bible textbook author at a Christian publisher. And I worked on a Biblical worldview team, applying a biblical view of life to every academic subject at every grade level. I remember the moment when a mentor there helped me connect the story of Scripture to the Biblical worldview. If every worldview tells a big story about the world, then the story of Scripture is the Christian big story. But I noticed something over time. People who are captivated by the beauty of the forest, the big story, often lose patience for examining the individual trees. The details get lost or smudged over in the rush to create a big picture. Not so with Craig Bartholomew, who is known for his ability to master the details and communicate the big picture. Today he and I will talk about an essay of his on the biblical wisdom literature, one I have read and reread over the years. I'm certain his insights will help you apply Old Testament wisdom to your contemporary life. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine Podcast Season 2, where our theme is Applying the Bible. And I have with me today Dr. Craig Bartholomew, who—and I'm just going to hold up one of his many books. This doesn't happen to be a Lexham Press book. This is just the most recent one, but he's done numerous Lexham Press books. Uh, so. Uh, I've been acquainted with him for a while. He's also written some key essays, one of which we're going to talk a lot about today, which goes back a couple years to a book called *The Trustworthiness of God*. But I want Dr. Bartholomew to tell us how do you serve the church currently, and give us some of the highlights of the ways that you've served the church in the past.
1: Yeah, so thank you, Mark, and it's wonderful to be with you and to have this opportunity to share and to talk about wisdom. So I am uh, an academic, uh, a Christian academic. I serve as the director of the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology in Cambridge in the UK. And uh, this is a very exciting center. Uh, It it works on uh, Christian research related to the question, how then should we live? So and then I'm also an Anglican priest and uh, an ordained minister and so uh, when I left school I went to seminary and uh, uh, did various degrees and then served as a pastor which I absolutely loved. So uh, some of the best years of my life and I never ever wanted to leave the pastorate and then being an Anglican uh, we have those things called bishops. And my Bishop uh, put pressure on me to go and teach at our new seminary in South Africa. And that really, the effect of that was to kick back uh, into my life, the great love of academia. So, and then the academic journey became and the journey of becoming a writer and an author and all those sort of things. But the academic work as I understand it is in the service of the church. So often the way that I will describe the sort of thing that people like me do is if you think of World War II, you had the the soldiers and the people fighting right up in the trenches, but then uh, way away you had people trying to break the Enigma code, which was the code that the Germans used. And Alan Turing. Alan Turing, that's right. So I think of myself and academics as as backroom people whose work is important, but we are there to serve those who are in the trenches.
0: That is so excellent. And that spirit comes out in your writing, and it comes out in a number of ways that we're gonna talk about in this interview, Lord willing. There's a particular essay that I wanted to talk about, and you alluded to the subject of it, where uh, we're gonna talk today uh, in this interview about how to apply Biblical Wisdom Literature, and that essay you wrote, A God for Life and Not Just Christmas, uh, that I think came out in 2002. I guess I'm not totally sure when you wrote it. I encountered it a number of years later. Um, that helped me deeply, really, to understand the place especially of Proverbs within the overall story of Scripture, and then also Job and Ecclesiastes. You spend time on those. The main thing I see you doing in this essay, A God for Life and Not Just Christmas, is you are rooting wisdom literature, all of it, in a doctrine of creation, a doctrine which makes up a significant part of the creation, fall, redemption, biblical worldview that I myself have actually written on, but nowhere near as much as you. And I know you talk about this in many places elsewhere. Now, my first question is, what is the danger for us if we don't interpret the Proverbs, this one portion of wisdom literature, in the light of a doctrine of creation?
1: Yeah, so th- th- this is a very, very good question, Mark. And, uh, and of course, uh, I don't think it's just a potential danger. It's a danger that we have seen acted out in far too much evangelicalism. And really, I think what happens is if you don't approach uh, Proverbs with uh, a doctrine of creation, what you will do is you will read Proverbs just for leisure activities, for private devotions, and for the sort of personal dimensions of life. And and this, you know, uh, far too often, for example, uh, people have... uh, approached Proverbs with this thing like a proverb a day keeps the devil away, you know, that, that kind of thing. So so what you end up doing is you domesticate the book of Proverbs and you read it for personal devotions and for your personal life and, and church life. Now, of course, all that is quite wonderful and very appropriate. But I think uh, what you will then miss is the fact that wisdom uh, in Proverbs relates to all of life. So, you know, recently, uh, just because I was very conscious that Americans were heading into a major election, and I never never got to write this up, but it was an interesting exercise. I just worked quickly through the book of Proverbs uh, to have a look at everything it has to say about politics and to see if it could provide criteria for orienting one towards deciding how to vote now you know so you see if you domesticate the book of proverbs and and you haven't got the big picture of the whole of life in view then what you're going to do you're not going to see that proverbs is actually full of material about politics so approaching the book of proverbs with a, a, a rich full doctrine of creation is just essential if we are going to hear Proverbs speak with all the power with which it does speak and the comprehensive range of what it addresses.
0: Now, I I grew up in an aspect of American evangelicalism that perhaps because it's influenced by Classic dispensationalism uh, tended toward the the ditch. I'm not going to say it fell into that ditch of saying why polish the brass on a sinking ship. The the application of the Bible was mainly to our individual and family lives, but. We all did want to follow the Bible, and we had the sense that when God says something, His authority carries over everybody. So there were times when we saw that the statements of the Bible spilled out far beyond the domestic. You talk about the, the domicile, the dom- domestication of Proverbs. And when I later in life found the Kyperian tradition that you write a lot about, this Doctrine of Creation book. It says it's a constructive Kuyperian approach. Um, I'm hearing Kuiperian themes and all the stuff that you're saying here. Am I right?
1: Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I have learned an enormous amount from uh, Abram Kuiper. So, and, and maybe one way just to get at that is to continue what we were just talking about is I grew up in South Africa, was thoroughly converted uh, out of a nominal Christian home, into South African evangelicalism. Now, of course, the culture in which I lived was uh, one in which white supremacy was legislated across the country in the name of apartheid. You know. Now, the the sad thing was that the, to a large extent, the evangelical church of which I was a part. Apart, had absolutely nothing to say to the racism that was staring us in the face every day. And then uh, through various uh, ways, I uh, came to realize that Christian faith is not just about my private life and church attendance, but that the gospel relates to the whole of life. And the word that really, really helped me in articulating that was to say, my faith is a worldview. And in the history of Christian thought, in the uh, second half of the 19th and early part of the 20th century, there are two theologians who really reached for the word worldview to express the comprehensive range of Christian faith. The one was the Scottish theologian, James Orr, And the other one who you've just referred to Mark was Abraham Kuyper. And both I think are tremendously significant, but what I found in Kuyper was someone who really tried to unpack for his time and his culture, what it meant that Christianity was a worldview. So I found Kuyper very helpful. I don't feel any need to follow him slavishly, but I found him a tremendous resource for retrieving this creation-wide vision of Scripture.
0: I've just finished reading the James Eglinton biography, critical biography of Herman Bavinck, who was sort of the theologian uh, companion of Kuyper. Not that Kuyper was not a theologian. In fact, Lexham Press has put out volumes of his work with the Acton Institute. I can't say I've made it through a lot of Kuyper, but I'm I'm planning to start with Bavinck. Um, I've dug into um, Al Walters. I know you know him, and uh, you cite him repeatedly. I do, too. His book, Creation Regained, was so, so helpful for me. I'm kind of going into that tradition backwards. Okay, but I don't want to get off on Kyperianism I just wanted to mention it. I wanted to get that name out there. Uh, I, th- I think I wanted to hear you say that was helpful. You-, you use the tradition. You don't obey it slavishly. Okay, now, let me ask you, let's get right to praxis. That's what I promised in this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, and in this episode on applying biblical wisdom literature, you said in this essay, a God for life and not just Christmas, and I somehow did pick up the the reference that was a dog for life and not just Christmas, some commercial from the ASPCA or something years ago. Okay, you said, in Proverbs, there are two major types of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of humans, and the bridge between these is that same doctrine of creation that we were just talking about a minute ago. So I want to get practical. I want you to talk to an engineer that I'm actually thinking of right now who loves the Lord, he wants to follow Him, he's gotten deep into Bible study, he has Logos Bible software, he doesn't at all feel called to full-time ministry, however. He still feels called to provide for his family and serve his neighbor by being an engineer, and in fact, he works on bridges. So help him to bridge the wisdom of God and the wisdom of humans through the doctrine of creation? What practically does that mean for this Christian man?
1: Yeah, so Mark, uh, uh, I love this kind of question. So it's just an absolutely superb question and just tremendously important, you know, because uh, the sort of Christianity that I was converted into tended to say that it was only if you were in the pastoral ministry or if you were a missionary then you were in the full-time service of God. So, so one caveat, just if I was to talk to your engineer that you're thinking about, I would, first of all, just remind him that if a person is a follower of Christ, all followers of Christ are full-time. So the notion that there is such a thing as full-time ministry, I mean, I know what people mean by it and, and, and that's fine, but that's full-time pastoral ministry. And the word word ministry simply means service. And so every Christian is in the full-time service of the Lord Christ. The only question is where and in what area of life are you in his full-time service? So so that's one thing I'd want to say to the the engineer, Uh, you too are a full-time servant of the Lord Christ. And, you know, Eugene Peterson, I think, captured this so beautifully when he writes, we are all in holy orders,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, so which is a beautiful way of putting it. Now, h- how does the engineer uh, connect with wisdom? Well, th- this is something that that I personally find just tremendous and, and very, very stimulating. So if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll find uh, there are two places. One is in Proverbs 3. And then the major places in Proverbs 8, where the role of wisdom in creation is explored. And in Proverbs 8, uh, wisdom is personified. So uh, she's personified as a woman who is created by God, and she's there uh, as he's bringing this glorious creation into existence. Now, the point of that is that. what is going on in Proverbs 8 is that God's attribute of wisdom is portrayed as a person. Okay, this is just one of the ways in which literature works. And what we learn from this is that it's through his wisdom that God creates the world. And that means that Buried into every aspect of the creation is God's wisdom, okay? And then, which is where this becomes very exciting, what humans are called to do is to find that wisdom, to excavate it, to live according to it, and to develop every aspect of the creation in line with that wisdom. So an, another metaphor we might use is uh, a carpentry metaphor maybe the engineer would like this more of uh, the grain of wood so it's as though God has created his world such as there's a grain to the creation and what you know and that's because God has put it there and we get wisdom when we discover the grain and we work along the grain Now, you know, the engineer, uh, I mean, uh, are hugely significant in the modern world. So every day, I mean, you and I are in buildings where we're driving through towns or whatever, and all around us is a way of forming culture that is designed by engineers. Okay. And so, uh, you know, it's very important, for example, that if we look at a literal bridge, that the engineer has done his or her work well, and it follows the laws of physics and so on, and it doesn't collapse. So so there's that way at a mathematical level, if you like, that the engineer is in touch with the order that God has built into his world.
0: He's discovered wisdom.
1: Well, yes, I think so, because You know, why is it that the world has these qualities? Well, Proverbs said to us, because that's how the Lord has made it. But of course, you know, engineering extends way beyond the mathematical. I mean, we're very aware nowadays that city planning, uh, the way we do roads, uh, bridges, there's all sorts of other dimensions to that, dimensions which are environmentally friendly, or environmentally damaging uh, dimensions, which facilitate community, or, or dimensions which frustrate community. So, so there's now, now. I'm not an engineer, but when I talk to my friends who are, they can come up with all sorts of examples of healthy engineering versus unhealthy engineering. So, I think I think the engineer, you know, he's working every day with God's wisdom. And so I think to become conscious of that and then to revel in it and then to help us to produce engineering that enhances this world as a place for human flourishing and to the glory of God.
0: Amen. You know, there's actually a pastor right down the street from me whose last name you might know. He's from a prominent Dutch Reformed family, and he was an urban planning major in college, and now he's a pastor. He's in touch with that Kyperian tradition, in part because of his heritage, but in part because of that calling that was in his life for a time to study, and the insights he comes to are very interesting in that way. You're making me think of a passage that Al Walters brings up in Creation Regained. I want to say it's Isaiah 28, where the farmer... Uh, threshes his grain in a certain way, and uh, and and then the the prophet says, his God teaches him, as if as you by trial and error figure out what threshing methods are the most and least effective. Not only are you discovering wisdom, you know, unpersonified as it were. You're actually learning something from the person of God. God is telling the farmer this is the way that my creation works. And if you want to go with the grain of it, and very literally, he's threshing that grain, then you need to do it this way. Same with the uh, bridge designer. He's discovering, he's, I think as Andy Crouch says, who's also in the tradition, um, He, you're uncoiling the potentials that God has placed into creation. <music> I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations. To teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software in all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture, Logos 9 has other small but big improvements, like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped Factbook, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our Mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. Okay, and you did a great job. It's really easy, and I've done this too, I've been interviewed to um, be asked to give a a specific uh, Bible passage and then to talk in generalities. But something I've really noticed about you, not least in this new book of yours, which has tons of these little sections in small type, um, full of exegesis, you do, Dr. Bartholomew, an excellent and diligent job. Uh, and not just in this book with Bruce Ashford, but in other writings, of not just talking in general theological categories, but actually digging down into Bible statements, which always makes me uh, not only get instructed, but just feel safer. I want a theologian who is actively in touch with the Bible. Okay, so I'm going to ask you another Bible question, help me apply Proverbs here, and help our listeners, many of whom, maybe most of whom, are on social media in some way. You said, way back in this essay, before social media came out, it's no easy matter to know whether to speak up in the context of folly or to remain silent. I, I think you're referencing Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, Answer not a fool according to his folly, I'll quote it in the King James, lest, uh, uh, lest thou be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. You said each situation has to be addressed, assessed, I'm sorry, on its own merits. Can you give us an example, without naming the guilty, of when you've applied Proverbs 26.4 and when you've applied Proverbs 26.5? I mean, I think this is a very pressing question. When do I answer on social media, when I see folly? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I know. So thank you, Mark. I mean, uh, that's a beautiful question. And so, you know, uh, so just to, to to preface my answer, uh, one of the themes in Proverbs is that wisdom is discerning what is fitting to a particular context. You know, so, uh, so and that's tremendously important. You know, sometimes we treat uh, truth and wisdom as though it's, it's just one shape fits all. Now, there, there are parts of the Bible that I think are like that, but one of the great things about wisdom is working out what is fitting for a very particular situation. And that's why I love these two proverbs because you know some people treat the book of proverbs and wisdom as though it's a technique or a software program that you can buy off the shelf and then you've got it, you know. Whereas the thing with proverbs and wisdom is, it requires discernment, and it requires thinking very hard about particular situations. So I thought about this, and, and, and I think I have some examples. So if we take uh, the second verse first, which is to answer a fool according to their folly. Well, you know, uh, I I was thinking about this, and I thought a a great example would be, let's say I'm pastoring, and I meet a young convert, and he or she hasn't realized that Christian faith relates to all of life. In fact, they've bought into this view that if they really want to serve Christ, they must uh, sell everything, abandon university, and go off to seminary and head to the mission field. Okay. Now, I think, although, uh, you know, some people listening to this or watching it might not agree, but I think the Bible would call that a form of folly. Okay. And especially if I meet this person and I'm a pastor, and as I get to know them, I realize this person really doesn't have the gifts for the pastorate. You know, this person could be a phenomenal something else and maybe called into something very different. Now then, so I would say uh, that that young person or person is being foolish, but it's not the kind of foolishness I should just ignore. It's the kind of foolishness that I should engage because they are open to being taught and I can save them a lot of misery. Okay, so that would be answer-a-fool. But then uh, I think all of us now, I mean, I can give some examples, but they would be fairly provocative. But all of us will have met people who want to argue, but actually they don't really want to have a civil discussion, and they're not really interested in the truth. All they want to do is to hammer away at their own point of view. And you you soon know that no matter what you say, they're just going to beat you up with their own view. Now, in my opinion, that could be a case where the wise thing to do is to not answer, to refrain from getting into such a discussion. And see, I think which, you know, uh, you've uh, you've alluded to in, in the questions you sent me, and maybe you'll get to this, but my hunch is, I I try and stay off social media. But my hunch is because social media is often fairly abstract and you're not actually seeing the face of the person you're dialoguing with, that it it lends itself to this kind of bullying, uh, uh, unattractive behavior.
0: And posturing, people don't want to lose face. And
1: and see, and and I think uh, in, in that situation, you know, uh, the the appropriate thing is is to remain silent, to move on. D- don't engage those conversations because it's not fitting. You know, yeah.
0: I, I think of another verse that uh, I, I, in my line of work right now, have to think of often because in my line of work, I'm on social media. And I do hear from people who are willing to engage openly. I think of two verses, Philippians four. Five, I think it is, let your reasonableness be known to all men. I have run into people who disagree with me, who nonetheless express an openness toward me that I find refreshing and we can have civil discussions even though we can't see one another's faces. But I also run into plenty of people that make me think of Matthew 7-6, I think it is, where Jesus says, and I have to quote the King James again, it's what I grew up with, "'Cast not your pearls before swine, lest they turn again and rend you.'" And I've sort of thought, okay, how do I know when somebody is swine, you know, that I shouldn't cast my pearls before? Well, it's a pretty good uh, indication if they turn again and rend me right off, you know? If they're just attacking, if they're going for ad hominem right off the bat, then I'm not going to engage, and that has saved me countless times. But I'd like to say that um, on social media, one of the reasons I stay on, although I do not push anybody else to be on if it's against their conscience in any way, they think they've got better things to do, they probably do, is that I have seen people listen, and I've seen enough of them, and I feel like it's worth my time. Okay, that was an excellent answer. You are answering on a hot topic here, social media. Let me get even hotter. You're on the hot seat, you're a theologian. This is what we pay you for, you know? The Christian church needs you. Uh, I won't ask you to reveal your personal views on the utility of masks and social distancing. You can if you want. But I want to ask how the wisdom books help us approach such an unprecedented situation. With with all the roiling concerns, you've got various parties in society, including Christians who are sure, and at least in the U.S., I gather that the U.K. is similar. Christians who are sure that masks are the leading edge of the totalitarian state, you know, entering into our lives and uh, surveilling everything that we do, and those who think that the first group of Christians are a bunch of conspiracy theorists who are uh, wasting the Christian reputation out in the world on needless alarmism. So get us out of this mess, would you, (laughs) through the wisdom of the Old Testament.
1: Well, I I doubt that I'll (laughs) succeed. That's
0: a tall order.
1: Yes. Well, I think it's a tall order because I think, uh, you know, one has to ask what kind of phenomenon is one encountering in these kind of incredibly deeply entrenched views. And uh, my own hunch is that often what one is encountering, and this can be on different sides of the debate, is a kind of irrational kind of commitment. So, so it's kind of ideological. It's not, uh, so sometimes, you know, uh, the, the, this is, uh, you know, if it's, uh, if it's irrational, then it goes back to our previous conversation. It might be better for me to remain silent, okay? But, but it's such a good question. And, you know, I think the answer to this is uh, that uh, if we really do take Scripture seriously, we have to try and listen to Scripture uh, rather than simply reading our own views into Scripture and then rejoicing when they come back to us. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is that we need to think very hard about these issues. So uh, one of the strangeness of our times is that we are amidst a pandemic, but it is only, although in America, of course, the numbers are now uh, really getting out of control, it still is only having devastating effects upon a minority of the population. So one of the results is that experientially it's very easy to enter a bubble where you feel this actually isn't that serious. And for example, myself, when we first went into lockdown here in the UK, I suddenly had so much work to do that I felt that I was disconnected with the pandemic until an American friend of mine's mother died of it. And then his whole family got it and then he was in ICU. And so it was that that really connected me very strongly with uh, the the horrible, horrible reality and dangers of it. Now, you know, what what I will do with that long uh, introduction is just quote one verse of Proverbs, uh, and this is from the NIV translation. The fruit of the righteous is a tree, and the one who is wise saves lives.
0: Hmm. Oh, that is so excellent.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's a very interesting thing. Now, I should tell you, and I haven't had the time to check this in the Hebrew and so on, that the, the, uh, some versions translated a bit differently. But I think this is a tremendous wisdom insight, that wisdom is a tree of life. You know, so it brings life. And then this, this little phrase, it, it saves lives. Okay? So knowing what is fitting and how to operate in particular situations can actually save people's lives. Now, so what this would mean is, I mean, if one wanted to do the whole investigation, one could. One needs to take the science very seriously, because at its best, science is an engagement with God's order in his creation.
0: It's discovering the wisdom he placed there.
1: That's right. So, you know, what Proverbs says to you is, This is something that evangelicals don't always understand, is there's lots of stuff you you have to learn not from the Bible. So, you know, the Bible, and this is what Proverbs is telling us, you know, that wisdom is found all over the creation, and there's tons of stuff we have to know every day to live that doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from observation of God's world and the study of God's world. So, so science in, in the best sense of the word is very important. So, I would think, you know, especially, I mean, if I'm going to a doctor for surgery or something, I want to know that the guy knows what he's doing. You know, it's no use him being a devout Christian and he has no training in the area of surgery and medicine and whatever he's going to do to me. So, Christians should should be uh, if they want to take Proverbs seriously you make sure you're very well informed and you listen to good science. Now then if uh, wisdom can save lives is as far as I'm aware, the, the, the consensus is that uh, wearing masks may help others getting the virus from us and it may help us from getting the virus. Okay. Now, in my opinion, if that saves one life, it's worth the discomfort of me wearing a mask. So, so I mean, it just seems to me that uh, there's a priority here, that saving lives is more important than my individual freedoms. And I think that is wisdom.
0: That That's helpful. Yeah, this is such a tough topic, and I did give you a tall order, and you gave us some good Bible for it. Now, I want to spin off of something that you said. Um, you know, you might possibly have made listeners to the Bible Study Magazine podcast mildly uncomfortable to say that we sometimes learn things from outside the Bible. Now, this is a guy who fills his books with Bible. I mean, it's Bible, Bible, Bible. And right at the beginning of your Doctrine of Creation, you and Bruce Ashford are talking about the uh, necessity—well, your approach is a confessional one. The Bible says that God created the world, and you start there. You're starting with faith. However, um, let let me try to interpret what you said, bounce it off of you, and get you to either affirm or correct what I say. Uh, the longer that I have tried to live um, in accordance with the wisdom of the wisdom books um, in discovering the wisdom in creation, the more I have a place in my life for using sp- the special revelation of the Bible as lenses to look at the general revelation, for which one of my best friends, is he's been on this podcast actually, um, is more the theologian. I'm more the exegete sometimes he warns me that my category of general revelation has gotten too large. But I tend to say, if all truth is God's truth, then when I look out there and I see that the sky is blue, that is a revelation of God to me. There is some moral obligation that comes to me when I see things with my own two eyes. Now, I've got to interpret it by the Bible, I've got to interpret my experience of general revelation of the world through the Bible. That's the only way I can get an accurate view of that other book of God's creation. For example, I need to know that the fall has happened, so I see mosquitoes out there and I don't conclude, what a cruel God this God is to make these creatures this way. No, the fall is what brings pain and sorrow. But I feel that over time I'm able to dig deeper into my Bible by looking even more at the world that God made to discover wisdom and understanding there. How does that all sound to you?
1: Mm. Yeah, no. So, so I think uh, in general that that's absolutely correct. So, and you know, personally, I think if you don't see this, you know, people think if they, you know, sometimes you get these very spiritual people who think. Gee, I look for the answer to everything in the Bible. And I, I remember once, uh, when I was pastoring in South Africa, I heard a woman walk out of church and she said, uh, now fortunately, I hadn't just preached, but someone else had preached. And she said, I'm very encouraged now to look to the Bible, for all answers to my depression, something like that. And, uh, you know, and I think, uh, so of course, now does the Bible relate to the issue of depression? Absolutely. Does the Bible give us a theory of what depression is and how to treat it? Absolutely not. And, and both are desperately required. So, you know, Calvin said that uh, he used the image of, of the Bible as like uh, spectacles or glasses, that bring the world into focus. And Mark, you and me both wear glasses. I don't know if we have the same problems uh, with our eyes, but it was, I still remember when I first got glasses that I was suddenly seeing things again that I probably hadn't seen for a while, you know? So I think that that's what scripture is there to orient us to the world authoritatively, normatively, in a way that is fully trustworthy but there's it's not there as a science textbook uh, or a a theory of, of medicating depression or, or those kinds of things that has to be explored and discovered through research and observation and looking at you know these patterns in the lives of people uh, you know it's just i think it's a tremendously important issue and you know what i would do with my students so i'll stop here is I would ask them questions like, all of us, this may sound real dumb, but I think it illustrates the point. All of us would say it's normative, if you can, for a human being to walk up straight. Okay, so if I met you, Mark, at church, and I came in doing leopard crawl into the church, you know, and there was no reason for it, you would say to me, you know, Craig, what's wrong? Okay, now there's nowhere in the Bible that it tells you it is normative for a human being to walk up straight. This is something we discover by living in the creation. Now, of course, there are some people who, by virtue of uh, injuries or or, or some kind of defects, can't do that. So we fully understand that. But generally, the norm is for human beings to walk up straight. Now, we know that from observation and living in the creation, not from the Bible.
0: Let me um, return to something you said just a little bit earlier, because I want wisdom, I want understanding, and it seems to me that the line between what the Bible directly addresses and what I learn by the general statements of the Bible uh, being applied to the general revelation of experience, you know, empirical methods, scientific methods, we usually call them today, what used to be called natural philosophy. Okay, um, let's go back to depression. Isn't it, given your your uh, use of the term worldview in that Kyperian tradition, isn't it to be expected that a materialist worldview that now reigns among elites in the U.S., a... A view that matter and energy are all that exist. There is no supernatural. There's no upper story, to use Francis Schaeffer's words. Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, wouldn't we expect people with that worldview to jump to material solutions to what they perceive to be material problems, because they don't perceive spiritual problems at all? So, um, although I I might have a space for medicating depression. Um, I'm not going to get there as quickly as the non-Christian down the street who's got a psychiatric practice, because I'm prepared to ask the person in front of me what guilt are you experiencing in your life? What is causing your sorrow? Is your view of God needing an adjustment from the Bible? Okay, so that's a huge question. I I don't want to get too far off into a very difficult, complicated matter. Um, But I do want you to help me use biblical wisdom to find the line, okay, between uh, when I'm going to go with the special revelation of scripture specifically, and when I'm going to use it as a lens to uh, uh, to judge the science, the general revelation out there?
1: Yeah, well, so, of course, just an enormous question and such a tremendously important one. So, but you know what is so interesting to me? So, if you're not careful, you get what I call a profound reductionism on both sides, So what you get with people who are, let's call them Bible only people. Okay, they think they have such a high view of the Bible that they look to, it it must answer every question we could ask or problem we struggle with. Okay, now they are always in danger of reducing a phenomenon like depression to something spiritual. OK, on the other side of the spectrum, as you pointed out, there will be in our culture people who think everything has a a chemical basis to it. And so they will be in danger of reducing depression simply to a chemical deficiency. OK, now, uh, you know, the answer is a, a plague on both houses. Yeah. You know, because many Christians have discovered to their detriment and to their damage, that, uh, you know, simply to treat depression as something spiritual can actually cause much, much more damage. You know, so so uh, depression it, it varies. It's a complex phenomenon, and it needs to be investigated through the spectacles of scripture.
0: You need to have somebody who understands that, in the words of Anthony Hokema, the human person is a psychosomatic unity. That our existence is fundamentally bodily. You know, our 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 spirits um, and our bodies. God has placed them together in a way that is indivisible, which points to the power of the word. Because Hebrews four twelve says that e- the word can even divide the indivisible, the the soul and spirit. So
1: what? When, so so what this brings into it is. What does it mean to be human? Okay, and and this is, by the way, where the book of Proverbs ends, with the Proverbs 31 woman as a glorious embodiment of what I would call wisdom incarnate. You know, and she's a multifaceted full human being. And so what psychosomatic unity would alert us to is that things can go wrong in the so-called spiritual areas that can affect the body, and things can go wrong in the bodily and other areas that can affect the other parts of a human person.
0: And the person is so constituted that to find sort of the borderline between those is, you know, ultimately impossible. That is, um, they are different, they're different aspects of the human person, but it isn't like there's an utterly clear line, and it requires wisdom, discernment, to know how to address problems. Okay, back to Proverbs. You talk about the act-consequence structure of Proverbs, and I, I want you to contrast that with what you see in other wisdom literature that we haven't talked about yet, uh, Job and Ecclesiastes. We're coming down to the wire in our time for this discussion. So this is really what got me to want to have you on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I felt this insight was so helpful. Help us contrast the different uh, kinds of revelation that these genres are, Proverbs versus Ecclesiastes and Job.
1: Oh, mm. yeah, well, thank you. That again is a really, really good question. So first of all, uh one thing to note is that in recent decades in biblical studies uh, a very important development has been the discovery that proverbs as a book is not just a random collection of proverbs but that it's actually structured as a literary whole so just uh, the, the, this has been argued in great detail but just to give you and, and the viewers uh, one example of this Proverbs starts in in chapter one and verse seven with its big motif, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And then the book ends with the Proverbs 31 woman as an incarnate example of what embodied wisdom actually looks like. Okay, so uh, I just I'm assuming that one can read the book of Proverbs as a whole. And that's very important because in one to nine, Proverbs sets out the basic principles of wisdom, what I call the ABCs. But then in later chapters of Proverbs, that is nuanced to a much greater degree. Okay. So for example, uh, the act consequence structure is that the way you live has consequences. It's as simple as that. Okay. And uh, the point is that if you want to, to live in a way that is blessed, that brings peace and shalom and prosperity, then you must seek to live wisely. If you want uh, to put yourself under the danger of calamity and disaster and so on and so forth, then by all means go and pursue the route of folly or foolishness. So this is the consequence structure that, and you know, this goes back to the doctrine of creation, that you are most likely to flourish if you live according to the grain of the universe. So now I'll just give you an example from Proverbs 3, uh, verses 8 and 9, verse 9, which says this, "Uh, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine okay so in other words you know you, you see what the uh, the writer is saying that uh, fulfill your religious requirements to God and make sure God is first and then the result will be tremendous prosperity your barns will be overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So th- this is a very clearly teaching that wisdom leads to human flourishing and some form of prosperity.
0: Act consequence.
1: Act consequence, okay. Now, of course, uh, some people would then take this in the direction of what is called prosperity theology, that this, you know, if you're not prospering and you're not wealthy, it's because you're being sinful. Now, that's where reading Proverbs as a whole is so important, because the book as a whole just won't let you do that. So, uh, if you move into the later parts of Proverbs, this, this is where the ABCs, the act consequence thing, is, is far more nuanced. And there's a a very real awareness that in lots of our lives, at lots of times, there are exceptions to that flourishing. So, for example, and one thing to look out in the later chapters of Proverbs are the better than Proverbs.
0: Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great riches. Yeah.
1: So, you see, here's one. Uh, and in fact, chapter 19 is very interesting because it's full of discussion about the poor. Now, if you go for prosperity theology, there's something wrong for you, with you if, you if you're poor. Right. Okay, but listen to this proverb. Better the poor whose way of life is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Okay, and so, and you know, uh, there's a a whole host of of such proverbs, but it's very clear if you read the book of Proverbs as a whole, that uh, wisdom does not guarantee in a fallen broken world uh, economic prosperity. But the general principle is absolutely true, is that living according to the grain of the creation is the way to flourish and to prosper.
0: So you've said that Job and Ecclesiastes can best be understood as complementary to Proverbs, mm. like those later Proverbs, okay, they explore wise living in the midst of particular exceptions to the act-consequence structure. Because our world is fallen, righteous acts don't always bring immediate prosperity consequences. That, that's really helpful. And I want to end with what is a personal question that I think can be helpful to our listeners. Um, and I, this is kind of my style. I actually have real questions that I myself want to get wisdom on, Within the last year or so, somebody that meant a lot to me apostatized, uh, Josh Harris. He left his wife and apparently left the faith, although I still pray for him ardently. I hope and I pray that his story with Christ is not over. And one of the criticisms that he received, and really an avalanche, uh, which I just wonder how that affected him spiritually, was for his early book written when he was a real young pup, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, in which he says himself, uh, in, a, in a documentary he did fairly recently, um, that he was a little bit too close to prosperity theology. It was act consequence, it was if you stay chaste, then God, it, you, you know, that's your part of the deal, and then God's part of the deal is he's gonna give you an awesome spouse and great marital sex. Okay, that didn't work out for a lot of people. Um, and they, the avalanche uh, of anger against him was really intense. Uh, I, it was painful for me to read many of these testimonies from people. And I felt like, on the one hand, we have people who are blaming somebody else for poor choices that they made, even if he influenced them. Uh, on the other, we have some people who are saying, well then, let's just toss out the the Bible's uh, commands to avoid fornication, uh, because if there is no act consequence structure, if if staying chaste when I'm a teenager doesn't guarantee me, you know, a, a good marriage, then why should I bother? So I, I wanted you to help us use wisdom to avoid the two ditches of thinking, on the one hand, that if I just stay chaste as a teenager, then God guarantees me a good marriage. And on the other hand, um, I might as well just toss out the commands of the Bible uh, to to avoid fornication, Um, because clearly there are all these exceptions. People who follow the rules right didn't even kiss until their wedding day and their marriage is over in two years.
1: Yeah, well, so, I mean, just an an excellent question, and of course, uh, immensely practical, you know, so and see, see, you know, so many thoughts on this, and and uh, and so tremendously important. So, just to, to preface my comments, lest they be misunderstood, what you'll find in the early chapters of Proverbs, the ABCs, is very strong warnings against adultery.
0: Right, the forbidden woman.
1: That's right. Yeah, there's the portrayal of the adolescent uh, male is being lured into you know the house of the adulterous a woman and this is clearly warned against so so i think proverbs lines up with uh, the ten commandments and uh, the old testament that really sexuality uh, in its full sense is the place for it to operate is
0: within the marriage bond let the marriage bed be undefiled
1: that's right yeah so, But I think, you know, uh, that that's not the end of the story. So I think what we have to think through, and this comes back to all our previous discussion, is, you know, what is the nature of sexuality? I mean, we're in cultures now where we're in deep trouble on this issue of the nature of sexuality.
0: Our cultures are living against the grain of God's creation to an incredible, like truly unbelievable degree.
1: Yes, uh, and I think uh, that is true. The question is, Is the church in the midst of this culture being wise? You know, so so the notion, for example, that uh, you know, uh, avoiding so so, so some Christians would argue, you know, virtually not holding hands, never kissing. I mean, you know, it gets to this level. Uh, Is that wise? I mean, I I I think uh, uh, not necessarily. But, you know, so we would have to think through carefully, I think, in in the, the lead, you know, when, when uh, uh, a guy and a girl are developing a relationship, of course, there's always a sexual component. And one would have to ask is, okay, you've been going out for several months, what is fitting in the relationship at that point? And then, okay, you're engaged and you're heading towards being married now. Uh, what is fitting at that point? And so, and I think this will require hard thought and also it may vary from person to person. You know, so, uh, you know, as Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, whereas some of us, you know, our eye is causing us trouble. So we rush around plucking everyone else's eye, you know? So I think, you know, part of it's this balance of, which the church has not always been good good at, is that sexuality is a great thing. It's a very positive good of the creation. And one way to distort it is just to indulge it at whim. Another way to distort it is to treat it as something dangerously weird until suddenly you're married. So so this, I think, is a huge area where we need to think hard. You know, and work out what is fitting.
0: We have had a wide-ranging discussion, Dr. Bartholomew, and I found it stimulating. I enjoy your work, and I'm really bummed, to use an American expression, I I guess as American, not to have encountered your work earlier, but we've got multiple Lexham Press books from you. I read uh, a work that you wrote on preaching, which was just excellent, and we'll have a link in the show notes. I've been showing off your new book, Uh, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to help us apply Biblical wisdom on the Bible Study Magazine podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: This has been among my favorite conversations ever on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Because watching Bartholomew work has made me realize afresh the kind of theology I want to do myself—a kind that is very attentive to the words of God and very capable of connecting those words to the big picture of real life. I want wisdom. I want my life to be a continual search for wisdom—wisdom in the Word and wisdom in God's good creation. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God.